This is Counterculture with Marie Busky. Wednesdays at 10 a.m. on Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to Counterculture with Marie here on Reality Check Radio. It is now time for Media Matters with Marty Gibson. Good afternoon, Marty. How are you? Good afternoon, Marie. I'm fantastic. Thank you. You went out this weekend and grabbed the weekend papers, Sunday Star Times, and what was the Weekend Herald? Was that your other indulgence of weekend choice? Herald and the Sunday Herald. So the yeah. Sunday Herald. So let's kick off with what was in the weekend papers. There were a couple of interesting bits and pieces you brought to my attention. A slog going through the weekend papers because there's quite a lot of padding and there are a lot of what you see with with the advertising revenue having come back from the private sector is that the ads are a lot bigger because unlike the government they don't pay they don't pay full rack price for advertising i was i was saying before there is some good criticism of what's happening in new zealand but you normally have to dig into the c section or the business section to see it before that there's a lot of airy just sighing acceptance of the the government's narrative there is a big opinion piece by mike munro who was a former chief of staff for jacinda ardern and was chief press secretary for helen clark you can see how his advice probably tied in well with jacinda's well, when you say that, it makes me a sad rabbit queen, kind of. I'm just not being, un- I'm obviously not PRing this enough, <laughs> rather than maybe it's a terrible idea. So he was talking about the um, the voice, which is Australians are watching what's happened with the treaty here, and they're looking at constitutionally enshrining Aboriginal people having a say on what happens to them. But obviously you can argue that that's anything and eventually it's likely to be that but he's saying in new zealand where the dark shadow of high inflation and rising borrowing costs mean the upcoming election will be overwhelmingly about the economy it's difficult to see how such culture war divisions will change many votes so what he's saying is well you know they might not like the stuff but we've tanked the economy so they're going to worry about that that's the thing with polarizing issues that attract labels such as culture war and wokeness. There is seldom, if ever, any upside for politicians who wade in, but there can be downside as we have seen here recently. Again, he's saying, no one's gonna wanna touch us on this. There's only downside for politicians. And that perhaps explains- Luxon's reticence? Yeah, just a total uh, reticence about calling it. It's really interesting that, you know, the only politician that gets any sort of mainstream airtime that is prepared to call this is Winston. And I think, and I guess that's because over what, how long has he been in the sphere for? 30 plus years? He's actually, he's created a space for himself that he's actually managed not to be censored. Shoots from the hip and calls it how it is, whereas the rest of them, I think, are too terrified to say anything that will be perceived by one faction or another to be unpopular or offensive or it's this insane form of self-censorship where you have them all sitting there saying absolutely nothing much of the time yeah well even i mean even when there is criticism i mean there's a there's a good opinion piece by bruce cotterell who's a company director and advisor to business leaders and wrote a book best leaders don't shout but you can hear the bewilderment where he just doesn't quite get what's going on. He's saying, imagine, it's talking about the Posey Parker situation. Imagine for a moment if a group of suburban mums and dads turned up with placards and megaphones to stop a symposium being hosted by the Rainbow community or if a of Iwi sought the use of a council facility to discuss their own views supporting co-governance and were turned down 
because of the content of the discussions. What that doesn't factor in is how it's perfectly sensible to neo-Marxists and Maoists who are in the driver's seat at the moment. And it's all about that upward pointing fist and the idea, well, if it's punching up, then anything's justifiable. Violence, terrible manners, silencing free speech. So that's what he doesn't get. That that the, those situations he described would be perfectly acceptable and reasonable to those people. And you can also expand on that and actually create it for the greater social body and the greater good in being on the team of five million. Yeah, it's you know, um, that's where, that's what happens when you take that ideology and extend it out across an entire population, isn't it? What else caught your eye in the weekend papers this weekend? Yeah, a weird thing, but I thought it was an interesting juxtaposition. It had a, a Swedish psychologist who, this was in the uh, Sunday Star Times focus, Swedish psychologist went on 100 dates. And I thought, well, that'll be interesting, but it, it actually wasn't interesting at all. It, it didn't really confront, except unintentionally, the situation that a young man must face, for instance, going on Tinder, which I'd been married too long to have ever had any contact with, you know, with, with women swiping no on 80% of men. It's quite tough out there for young men, but she was saying choice overload is also very real, she says, which genuinely does make dating life trickier. The more choices we have, pickier we are, she says. That's not a problem for your average guy who, uh, you know, two or three generations ago would have spent a Maybe a few weeks caught in a lady and, uh, you know, maybe taken her out for dinner a couple of times and uh, and then got married, had kids. Whereas uh, women tend to have a lot more courting money spent on them now, arguably maybe with, with less security in the marriage. But opposite that was Alison Mao bemoaning the hurdles on pay transparency, assuming that because women are paid less than men, it's because of institutional misogyny and it's, it's sexism. And she's really pushing hard for legislation to be enacted to ensure that that happens automatically to the disclosure. It, in a country with more men named Mark than women at CEO level, we might have been waiting forever had it not been for a group of determined women with a plan uh, who founded Mind the Gap. Always about, we're not CEOs. You know, why aren't more women CEOs? It's because you've got to be a certain type of mad to do that. And it's funny you should mention this. CEOs, you've got to be brutal. There was a study I read somewhere and they talked about the personality type of most CEOs in order to succeed. And one of the key ingredients, I think it was maybe been Jordan Peterson that did this, one of the yeah. key ingredients that you had to be to be a successful CEO was disagreeable, highly yeah. disagreeable. Be a psychopath at, at rates that are, are something like 10 times the uh, average in, in the population. And, and I guess that ties in with, you know, the idea of women looking for partners. It's the nature of women to want to marry up. You know, they, they typically a, a female CEO wants to marry a male CEO. Mm -hmm. Whereas for a male CEO, they tend to uh, value youth and beauty and chastity more. So it's, it's it, again, there's a whole series of assumptions and that kind of sighing. Well, why can't we just be more enlightened but ignore human nature completely? And the danger there from more is the fact that she's saying this needs to be legislated against. I remember, was it a few years back, actually pre-COVID, so more than a few years back, they did the entire, we want to see, uh, I think was it on state-owned enterprises, they wanted to see 
boards carrying at least 50% female content. They want it just sitting on boards. And the problem with that, yeah. of course, is that you've got to find, in order to sit on a board in a, gov- a position of governance over a large corporation, you have to have a certain level of knowledge, not only of business or finance or that specific interest that that business is part of. Surely you want the people that are sitting there at that table to be there based on the merit of what they know Mm. in order to make that entity or business succeed, not what they've got down in their trousers. And the meritocracy of that, which is so important, has now been stripped away. And the other side of it too is that if you've ever spent time, I mean, I have actually sat on a couple of boards for my crimes back in the day, Nine times out of ten, it's like watching paint dry. It is, Mm. you have to be a very specific sort of person to want to actually be involved in that sort of governance because it really is, if if you're a busy person and you're quite dynamic, you've got things to do, a lot of board work is deathly dull and I think a lot yeah. of women just can't be bothered with that to be brutally honest oh for sure yeah I can't be bothered to do with, with your time I've been, I've been on boards as you say most of the time if you are on a board of an organization that employs staff you're mostly checking to see whether you're getting ripped off by the staff who have got all this time that they're paid tell a good story whereas you're not paid but, I mean you know it's, it's quite funny as well like she, she says who are the holdouts retail is one although the warehouse group is there and worryingly, there is only one university, AUT, on the register. So that you can hear a lot on that, can't you? It's like, well, academia is meant to be on our side. Mm. You know, why aren't they doing what they should be doing? And maybe it's because they're bumping into the same old problem. You know, if, if women who are as good as men were 10 or 15% cheaper, well, why doesn't everyone just hire them? It's because, you know, it's the same in the case of doctors. You know, you, you, you hear female doctors complain now and then that they're paid less than men. And again, you know, having had experience with businesses that employ doctors, it's because the male doctors will work weekends or work nights. You know, they're not looking for work-life balance to the same extent as women are. Uh, Mind you, from what I understand, that is actually changing. It's one of the challenges that is now facing uh, medicine is that for the first time ever, a lot of those male doctors are expecting the same sorts of work-life balances, especially after COVID, where they've actually done medicine just like you and I are doing this interview now, remotely and from home, yeah. and they have all this flexibility. I know GP practices are struggling to actually physically get doctors in there in front of patients in some cases. Not all, but certainly in some. So actually, did you see, I'm just going off on a tangent, but I don't know whether yeah. you caught up with this morning, the release of stress, workplace stress, in jobs in New Zealand and they are concerned about the medical workforce because the average New Zealand worker has a stress level of around 12.5% I think it was how they measure this I have no idea but they've measured doctors and their rate of stress was more than double at around 22-23% and they're concerned about medical burnout Uh, within the medical fraternity, particularly in hospitals, and being able to not only attract doctors, but also retain and keep doctors in the current environment. I don't know about you, Marty, but I heard that uh, when I woke up and I thought to myself, no shit, Sherlock. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there's a lot on nurses and the nurses thing, we've highlighted that in the last couple of shows. I mean, that's a ticking time bomb. Yeah. 
and again, you know, sure, the work is stressful, but there's always that 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 almost 50% of GDP elephant in the room. It's the government and all these managers who are who are make all these make work jobs demanding all of this reporting outside the yeah. mere job. And who and who is applying that stress? How if, many teachers have you heard say, you know, if it was just the teaching, it'd be great. Exactly. And, and so you've got the same politicians who are administering over the system that puts this huge bureaucratic weight on already understaffed uh, organisations at the same time saying, well, we need to more money to, to grow them. Uh, more and and that typically you know when you get that well, what are you going to cut doctors nurses teachers you know when you say maybe the government should represent a far smaller proportion of GDP they never talk about management management consultancy most people don't want teachers doctors nurses cut it yeah, they just like things to be a bit more efficient, and that seems to always be off the table. When I saw that piece this morning, all I thought was, is, wow, they don't kind of realise, particularly if the government are going to weigh in on this. I mean, they are the architects of their own design. And the pressure now, as you said, in administrative, managerial pressures, the amount of time doctors are taken away from face-to-face patient time. Then you've also got this now overarching threat that all doctors had that they never really had before COVID, but the New Zealand Medical Council has now turned into a, a medical police force. Yeah. The medical police, the MPs of the of the system, and they are now actively going after and prosecuting doctors for even holding differing opinions. I know Dr. Peter Kennedy has been in court this week. That in itself, even if you are aligned with opinions, there is a pressure there because all of a sudden when you don't know when you may not become aligned, you know, all of those things uh, do create stress. So it is certainly, I'm like, what, you're only just figuring this out now? Oh, yeah, dear, well, I mean, oh dear. There's a certain, I remember reading this really great point where, and I think it was my beloved essayist Theodore Dalrymple made it. He said, you know, people always look at the propaganda for um, in communist countries and it was, how could people be so stupid as to believe that? But the point is, people don't believe it. They just have to pretend to believe it. And when you do that to a population, you make them a population of liars. And liars are just so much easier to control. And, you know, one of the points that, and I'll come to the uh, Media Insider article from the, um, the Weekend Herald, which refers to Reality Check Radio. One of the... Uh, aspects of COVID that I was surprised didn't get more press. I thought it was uh, very telling was that doctors had received this letter from the medical council basically saying, if you go against what we're telling you to say or what the Ministry of Health is saying, we'll remove your practicing certificate. You won't be able to work, basically. And it wasn't just and doctors. It was nurses, midwives, doctors, nurses, everybody. Yeah. Even even those who who uh, suggested, like Matt, Matt Shelton, suggested caution for pregnant women. And I would say he turns out to have been vindicated by a lot of the data that's coming out now. Um, but it was after after they got that threat that uh, Jacinda Ardern was on television saying, "Of course, the best person to." talk to you about this as your GP because they know you best. The fact that she was 
recommending people get advice from people that she just threatened a few weeks ago with uh, losing their livelihood if they uh, contradicted her, I-, I thought was a telling point and it was one that completely disappeared without trace. I remember seeing that piece and I was so angry, mm. so incredibly viscerally angry when I saw that, to the point that the language and the abuse slung at the television was so extreme that <laughs> I was then banned from watching any more news. But that was the entire point though, Marty, it wasn't intended to, it was do as I say, not as I do. So this piece about the Outsiders piece, tell us a little bit more about that. It's a media insider, it's by uh, Shane Curry, and he's talking about um, uh, Reality Check Radio um, set up by anti-establishment and anti-media group Voices for Freedom. That business has been supported by its own expensive marketing campaign featuring billboards featuring Brennan Hyde, former TV and Z star Peter Williams, uh, and Chantal Baker. I think he quotes one of the rights who are funding um, the platform platform and says, they talk about issues with a narrow bandwidth vaccines, mandates, and conspiracy topics. The platform, he insisted, was covering more of the news of the day with more diversity and open debate. What I find about the platform is they remind me of that joke, if you are tramping and and you come across a bear, you don't have to run faster than the bear to survive. You just have to run faster than your friend. I think that's the philosophy of the platform. They, they just sort of say those couple of steps away from... Um, the alley mouse and uh but not too far and i think it's also quite sad that he felt that he needed to make that comment because both us and the platform uh, there's more than enough space in the media landscape for us in fact i think we're both really important well i think i mean this space. is the most we've talked about COVID in, mm. in the uh, entire time not because it's not really interesting to us or we haven't seen a lot of stuff that's worthy of comment but as I've often said, we can go upstream and talk about what's driving that and it's far more interesting and far less contentious. And I think people on both sides of the debate can agree that, okay, well, maybe it's a good idea to give people these shots. Maybe it's not. But the more interesting thing to talk about is when did informed consent stop being the bedrock of all medical ethics? Mm. When when did it um, become permissible to offer children incentives of fast food and electronics to get a shot that even at the government at the time knew probably wasn't going to help them very much and carried with it real risks. So you can talk about the efficacy further downstream, but and those ideas of informed consent, whether it's to be given medication or to be ruled over by government, far more interesting conversations. Yeah, far more. Actually, speaking of uh, ruled over or at least funded by government, you may have not noticed, I don't spend much time on Twitter. In fact, I've actually rejoined since I've had this job. Radio New Zealand. Have you noticed Elon's got some new labels that he's been popping on certain entities? And Radio New Zealand found that they gathered themselves one of these new labels. So when you look up Radio New Zealand now on Twitter, directly below it is a label that says funded by government. Yeah, well, yes. <laughs> again, it's it's there is that sanctimonious air that they have. Well, I mean, if only people could understand. I mean, these, why are people so wrong-minded and muddle-headed? And, and also attribution of of motivation. You know, where where if you don't agree with it, it must be because you want to commit genocide on 
trans people or something like that. Outrageous assumptions of motivation and why people do things mm -hmm. rather than actually asking them, them themselves. Yeah. Okay, I want to jump over to some education, if I may. Yep let's let's keep the let's keep that going because there's virtually nothing in any of the weekend papers about New Zealand's biggest looming crisis. Yes, literacy and numeracy and uh, the last couple of days have been very full with the story. Jan Tanetti has come out with her announcement for education. So Luxon came out a few weeks ago and he said that he wanted to increase uh, as under national uh, one hour per day of reading, one hour I think, and I think also one hour per day of mathematics for every school child at primary level, particularly between years four and eight. And that was actually pretty well received across the general population in terms of commentary, not quite so well received by teachers but looking at the political affiliation of most of those that's hardly surprising so jan tanetti has come back with her counter offer in election year and with a rather lackluster fanfare a couple of days ago announced her absolute benchmark plan for education and that is to reduce the teacher to student ratio in years four to eight from 1 in 29 to 1 in 28. Groundbreaking. 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 And you know, when you say teachers haven't critiqued it because that's no surprise, it, it, you've got to say that normally who you hear from is teachers' unions. It's not the same thing. Good point. Yes, it is generally the union. If you talk to teachers, most of them are feeling a bit like nurses relative to the nurses' union. They're kept in line because they have to belong to the unions. I think teachers have very real concerns about the ability of the children that they're teaching to deal with life as a result of the education system. They know that it's done. Again, I could quote your teacher saying, and I never want to be quoted at this um, named, but he said, it's like being a concentration camp guard. You know they're doomed, but you just have to keep waving them through. It's, a, it's just such a sad indictment. So I did some back of the envelope numbers on what this actually means. So the first thing that she also announced was that this wouldn't be coming into full implementation until 2025. So therefore that bases this on an assumption that they're going to win the election. Well, jury's out on that score. So the next question is years four to eight. Now, most children who are attending school in year four to eight, that's across two different schooling modalities. So years four to six at the end of primary school, years seven and eight at intermediate school. If you looked at primary school, I don't know the experience you've had, but I've certainly just know with my sons coming out of primary school before they entered year seven, they were not well equipped. There was lots of catching up that, that needed to happen in years seven and eight before they hit year nine. Most classes are already sitting at around 30 plus kids. And if they're in the open plan environment, like your son's uh, school, it was what, 120 um, mm. kids in, a, in an open plan class with what, two or three teachers? 106, yeah. 106. So most, so if you had a look at a, say, a primary school of 600 students, which is actually quite large. I know my kids went to a school half that size. Uh, so if you looked at a school at 600 students, years four to six, that actually represents around 200, 
Mm. Probably only about a couple of hundred kids. That's six classes at around 33, 34 kids per class. If you were to if you were to take them at their word and they were dropping that back to one and twenty-eight, so you've already got the classes oversubscribed, so you're pulling that back and you can scrounge together an extra class. A, where are you going to put them? Most of these schools are bursting at the seams anyway. Where are they going to find all of these teachers? I mean, I think they're struggling to get teachers trained and through, and teachers are leaving at record rates. They're struggling to find young adults to go into teaching anyway. I just feel like that this is a pipe dream announcement, and the teachers, I think, are in many of the unions are in a wage negotiation at the moment. Is this sort of some kind of sort of lacklustre attempt from Tanetti to butter up the teachers' unions in lieu of the fact that they're not going to give them a cost of living or inflationary increase like they've given everybody else. Well, and you're coming back to the same issue where the government's presenting problems and their analysis is is missing any uh, mere culpas. So, I mean, one of the examples of that is that it's good to have an open plan class with 104 kids in it. But if you add to that, that you're not streaming those kids, so they're all at different levels. So rather than sort of be able to teach them at their level of proximal development, I think it's called. So you're just teaching slightly above what their level is, which is how people learn. You've got kids who are maybe spanning three years in ability. So their solution is, okay, well, we won't give the bright ones any extension work and that'll pull them down. So that'll that'll get it a bit closer and and we'll uh, jig the uh, NCEA testing so more kids pass our tests rather than actually know what they're meant to know to take their place in the world. I I have to say this in case I haven't said it. When you start looking at that and start looking, okay, well, these guys are presiding over an education system that's failing over 50% of children who go through it. We've got to start actually characterizing that as evil because a lot of those kids are going to end up in jail. A lot of those kids aren't fulfilling their potential. That's why I'm I'm shocked at how little commentary there is on this in the paper. If I contrast it with the, the, the vacuous crap that fills most of it, it'd be really useful to have that kind of analysis at the forefront of people's minds because they really don't understand the implications of it over the coming decades. No. But as I think I've mentioned before, part of the reason they don't cover it is because then they have to admit that it's been a failure and no one wants to do that, do they? Functions in the political system far more than we'd we'd like to think. This idea, well, we've had so much loss, we can't just say, well, we haven't achieved what we said and uh, stop. So they just kept grinding. Yeah, it is It is certainly a worry. And we're going to keep an eye on education because if no one else is talking about it, we certainly will. I'm going to com- completely change tack for a second. I'm going to give you a quick update. I talked about it earlier with Rachel before, but uh, since we discussed it last week, our uh, favourite Essex pub landlady turned around and got some more golly dolls and was donated some dolls and she popped them back up. Bless her heart, Martin. On Tuesday, some pub regulars turned up to show support, but others expressed their fury. The pub lady, landlady, Bernice Riley, refuses to accept that the dolls are racist, clutching an armful of dolls, including three that have been donated by supporters. She said, I'm going to put them back. So good on her. So she has gone and done that, bless her heart. So I haven't seen anything more on that, but it looks like it's nice to actually see somebody out there prepared to push back and just say actually no 
this is this is my pub our space this is what we're going to do if you don't like it and she literally even said i think in the article if you don't like it don't have a drink here Mm. you know just well it's nice to see people standing up but as we discussed last week that the nail that sticks up gets hammered down and we kill the chicken to train the monkey and uh it's a far less common kind of bravery than we like to think it is up in scotland a male gp was prohibited from donating blood to the scottish nhs after he refused to confirm whether or not he was pregnant Stephen McAndrew said he'd been turned away from Blood Donation Centre in Air after he declined to answer the bonkers question if he was carrying a baby. The Scottish National Blood Transfusion Service claimed that the question was introduced a year ago for donor safety. Everyone is expected to confirm whether they are pregnant or had been recently, regardless of their sex. Yeah. Clown world. yeah, well, it, it is, but again, it, it's it's as is so often the case. It's not the thing is not the thing. The mental side is real. He says here to say this is bonkers is an understatement. I have a nagging feeling that it's political correctness gone too far, trying to placate and pacify the gender brigade. I'm hugely supportive of the blood transfusion service. They're a vital day-to-day operation of the NHS, but I really think they're shooting themselves in the foot with this. What I find interesting in this, that we now have a doctor that's saying, finally saying, this is really crazy because most NHS doctors are fully on board with all of the sort of craziness that comes down from upon high and to actually finally, it's like, what would, what will push you so far where you'll finally go enough is enough and obviously that was it yeah i did think that that was rather interesting and it certainly just goes to prove the absolute insanity that we have going on have you got anything more there i've got one more that we could squeeze in if you've got nothing else well no i'll I'll do a real quick one and then you can do a real quick one all right and and this is kind of uh, you know a different thing to our our usual there's a a a little note in the uh, sunday star times that the the tongan eruption was bigger than any nuclear blast and it talks about the size of it and it found that tsunami reached heights of 45 meters now i I did some additional um research uh, on nasa's data on this and they discovered that uh, that eruption introduced 146 teragrams, which is a trillion grams of water into the upper atmosphere. Could explain why we've had such a uh, wet, wet summer. summer so people can get their head around it. That is uh, 146 million tons of water, which increases the amount of water up there by about 10%. That's so, a lot. It might be a better explanation than uh, than our farting our cows trips and farting cows. Yeah. Uh, so I thought that was interesting. Again, tucked away in in uh, in the back recesses of the paper. The last little one I've got is around uh, the Green Party calls for excess profit on supermarkets after another spike in food prices. One does not need to be a genius to know that food has gone up. Anyone that has done any shopping anywhere lately 
will know that that is the case. Data from Statistics New Zealand released on Monday shows food prices were 12.1% higher in March 2023 than March 2022. There were annual increases across the board of the food categories, with grocery prices increasing by 14% and fruit and vegetable prices increasing by 22.2%. That was March 2023 compared to 2022. The cyclone Gabrielle and also cyclone Hale would have had an effect on that because those cyclones hit prime growing areas i.e around yeah auckland east coast hawks bay so supply and demand so that will certainly be a contributor now why do i bring all of this up you ask because green party spokesman for commerce and consumer affairs ricardo mendez march says the evidence for excess profit tax could not be clearer a green mp calling for more tax is it is a novel idea one lettuce grower news hub spoke to said he would sell one a lettuce for three dollars but in-store customers would pay more than six dollars for the same lettuce well as someone who spent time in retail that's called a markup and the reason there is a markup there is because that business that you've chosen to go to to buy said lettuce from has fixed costs and overheads of which that they have to cover interestingly enough none of those are mentioned now i'm not saying that supermarkets aren't making record profits and making a lot of money i'm not saying that but they're supermarkets they're private entities they're private businesses they're not owned by the government they are publicly listed companies they have a duty and of care to their shareholders that is what they are there for just putting it out there but we not once did news hub nor menendez march actually look at some of the costs of doing business that these supermarkets and the pressures that these supermarkets have had to undertake particularly in the last three years with the dramatic increase in the rise of the minimum wage yeah. which is something that affects supermarkets they sort of kind of left that bit out in the reporting marty and i would have thought that that would be quite obvious yeah well record inflation makes uh your current profit a record profit often doesn't it because the, the money's worth less. It, inflation drives up profits as well. You know, whenever I see a young socialist uh, talking about raising the minimum wage, I always think back to my own experiences employing people. Some people are just, you, you want to pay more money because they're more productive, and some people just aren't. So raising the minimum wage means you're, you're not paying your, your best people what they're worth, and you're paying your worst people more than they're worth. Mm. Uh, it's, it's one of those blunt instruments that that is best wielded by someone with little or no life experience and i know that that was our last uh item but i will squeeze this in was here john rowan eviscerated oh michael wood michael wood well god that's it is an easy target to be fair Michael, I hold lots of portfolios, have lots of ideas, but have actually achieved absolutely nothing other than having record spending on consultants, would. Just described him as a very left-wing kind of guy who um, who was basically looking for ways to spend the money that Labour had borrowed to fight COVID on all sorts of poorly thought-out ideas. National is still talking about taxpayer money that the government spending, whereas... I think for most people running a household, it's better described as money that you're racking up on a credit card. Because it's not like they're diving into our savings. They're, they're, the, the money they're spending is borrowed against the future earnings of these children that are increasingly poorly educated. It, 
Right, to finish up with Marty, I have got some, we've got some mail. Woohoo! We have mail. So in the mailbag, the first thing I'm going to pick up is from Alexander. Alexander, bless his heart, um, it's actually good. If you get something wrong, when you get somebody that knows stuff that lets you know the right things, and Alexander has done that for me, uh, he was listening to an interview I did with Adam Coleman, and Adam was talking about the prosperity doctrine, and I thought that was potentially the same as tithing. Apparently it is not, and Alexander has let me know this. He said, um, I wish to advise you that you're totally wrong on that. Tithing has nothing to do with the prosperity doctrine. It's the leader's so-called pastors that are totally twist the scripture and use fundamental biblical principles to further their own ends. Thank you very much for letting me know that, Alexander, because as I was quite open, I'm not a Christian, so I'm not completely up to play with all of these things. So it's nice to get these things right. So I appreciate Alexander sending that. I also have another one from uh, Libby just writing to say how much she enjoyed uh, last week's show. Uh, She said it was incredible, best radio she's listened to in years. So thank you very much, Libby. I do appreciate that. And we've had a big... A lovely big letter from Rob and he's got lots of things here that actually are some of the things that we've been covering off in media matters that he'd love to see some of the things you, you've talked around in terms of the neo-marxism and some of the themes both here in the United States and um, abroad a lot of it of course obviously around the great research reset and the such Um, and also digital social credit and and the like. So that is something I know I talked about with Jodie this morning. So hopefully, Rob, um, you enjoyed that as well. So that is all the mailbag from this week. If you've got more that you would like to share with us, inbox at realitycheck.radio. That's inbox at realitycheck.radio. You can also text us now at 4040 then put RCR in the new message after that. That gets to us as well. Awesome. Thank you as always, Marty. This is um, Marie and Marty here with Media Matters. There is always something to talk about. Uh, So we will dive in and have a look at new topics for next week. Do hang around. There's more here to come, including the woke word of the week here on Reality Check Radio. Have a good week. You've been listening to Counterculture. With Marie Busky. On RCR. Reality Check Radio. Radio.